So this morning, I'm going to talk about improvisation. It's a bit of a strange topic, isn't it? Improvisation is this. This is what the dictionary says. To invent or to make something, such as a speech or a device, at the time when it is needed without already having planned it. Or the actors are mu when actors or musicians improvise, they perform without prepared speech or music, making up the play, music, etc., as they perform it. Um, it's probably at this point that I should say I'm not going to practice what I preach this morning. I have actually prepared a sermon. <laughs> I do have a plan. I do have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, so what does improvisation have to actually do with our lives here and now? Um, well, I hope that that's actually going to become more clear as we go on. But first, I'd like to just give a little illustration. Just imagine that you're at a bus stop. You are um, just waiting there, and somebody comes up to you, and they say this. They say, the Latin name for the common wild duck is Histronicus, Histronicus, Histronicus. Well, you can understand the words that they're saying, they're English, well, most of it's English. But why would they say that to you? We don't have the full story, do we? We don't understand what is behind that particular statement that this person has said to you. We need to understand the fuller story in order to understand what that statement meant. So, for example, maybe um, it's a case of mistaken identity. They thought you were the person in the library yesterday that was discussing this topic. Or maybe um, this person suffers from chronic shyness and his psychoanalyst told him, just go up and say the first thing you can to a complete stranger, the first thing that comes to mind. Or maybe he's a Russian spy, and he thinks you are too. <laughs> but, we... <laughs> but we don't actually know, because the story is incomplete. We actually live in God's story, and we need to understand that full story to understand the, the big picture of what, where we live, and why we live, and why we're here. So this morning we're going to just look at the big picture for a bit and then we'll zoom in to a particular scripture um, to help us understand it. So it's become popular to look at the big picture, God's big story um, as written in scripture as a six-act play. Um, so we're going to briefly go through that today. It could actually do you know, a sermon on each one easily, lots of sermons on each one, but we're just going to look at it in, in an overview. So Act 1 is God establishes his kingdom. It's all about creation. So God creates a good world, and he puts Adam and Eve in it as his image bearers. And he gives them instruction. He tells them to subdue and to fill the whole earth. 
So they are to go out from Eden and they are going to spread Eden to the whole world. Act 2. Act 2 is the fall. Adam and Eve were not content to be God's image in the world. They wanted to be like God. And so they fall. And we have them cast out of the garden. And right going up to Genesis 11, we have the rise of an arrogant empire um, where they want to be like God. Act 3. God is not happy with the situation he wants redemption, and he puts in a plan, um, puts a plan in place to initiate redemption. Redemption with Abraham, he calls Abraham, and he blesses them so that, in order to bring those scattered nations back to God, he's blessed to be a blessing. Um, but Israel and Israel is chosen. Israel um, is chosen to be the means by which God brings this redemption. Um, but Israel, as we know from the Old Testament, Israel fails, and they're exiled, and they become obsessed with their own salvation, not those of the countries around them and the, and the rest of the world. Act 4, the coming of the king. Redemption is accomplished. When Israel fails, Jesus takes on Israel's missional vocation to bring salvation to the nations. He gathers and he restores Israel to their missional calling of the world. He does this not by force or triumphalism, but through sacrifice and humility, by coming as a baby, and through his life, death, and resurrection, redemption is accomplished. He took the sin of the world upon himself, and at his re resurrection, he inaugurated a new creation. He was the firstborn into the resurrection life. And one day, that resurrection life of justice and peace will fill all of creation. And until that day, the church is, made, is called to make known the good news. So I've quickly added in Act 6 and Act 5 there. So we're going to jump to Act 6. Redemption is completed. And that's when Jesus comes again, when that resurrection life is inaugurated in all of creation and justice and peace fills the earth. And Act 5 is the bit in between. So in between Jesus' ascension and him coming again, which is spreading the good news of Jesus. So... Act 5A, if you like, is Acts and all the books to all the different churches, all the writings of Paul, all those are Act 5A. And they um, talk of the gospel spreading um, the in-between time. So we're in Act 5B. And this is where we'll focus our attention. We're not given a script of such so how, are we know, how do we know what to do? In a world that's very different from the world that Jesus lived in, in a world that's very different from um, Palestine in the first century, very different from where the disciples lived. Well, we're, how, so how do we know what to do? 
Um, N.T. Wright talks, uh, gives this illustration. Just imagine um, that somebody finds a really old um, manuscript of Shakespeare, and it's a play that nobody has ever seen before. All the parts are there except for Act 5. What would they do? Well, he suggests that what they would do was not... Um, was, would be to get a whole lot of actors together, Shakespearean actors, actors that knew Shakespeare. They knew all the, all the plays he'd written. They had acted in them before. They knew how he wrote, how he thought, and they would get these actors to improvise Act 5. But they're not acting blindly. This is not improvisation in the sense well, I don't think improvisation has a sense that they just make up anything and go in any direction, but they have Act 6. They know where the story is going, and they can step through to get to Act 6 knowing the writer. And we're in that same situation. We know the writer. He's revealed himself in Jesus. And we're called to improvise in the sense of knowing the story, knowing the big picture of what God is achieving, knowing what's coming in Acts 6, and knowing what Jesus' mission was, um, and, and we can act accordingly to that. We improvise according to what we know, the picture that we know. So we can learn from what has gone before. In Acts 1, we learn how we can see how the world was meant to be, how God created it, what he intended. And in Act 2, we can see the details of how it changed, how it changed for the worse, and how it's no longer how God intended it to be. In Act 3, we get both good examples and bad examples and we, but we see God moving towards Jesus and putting his plan in place. And then in Act 4, we have the ultimate example in Jesus. And this is where our hope is based. This is where we find the love of God paying the ultimate price, where we find the words of Jesus directing us for now and asking us to carry on the story of God. We'll come back to some of his words in a minute. In Act 5a, we can learn from what the disciples did after Jesus left. In Galatians, we can learn how the gospel can be translated in, uh, across cultural lines. In um, Corinthians, we can learn about how God's love and how our love for others um, triumphs over um, spiritual practices. How, um, and in, sorry, I've lost my place, in Philippians, um, such, such encouragement uh, we find in Philippians and so forth. So here we are in Act 5b, and we're commissioned to carry on the story. We have... Yeah, Romans 5.1 says, um, we know, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have the peace of God. So let's look at, at John chapter 20. Um, in John chapter 20, this, so this is a point in Scripture right between Act, well, it's right at the end of Act 4 and leads into Act 5. And it's, uh, Jesus has already died, and it's early in the morning on the first day of the week, and Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, and, and she finds the tomb open, as I'm sure you all, all know. And she runs back, and she, and she tells the other disciples, and Peter and John, they run to the tomb, and they find it empty, and they go home. But Mary Magdalene, she stays there, and she weeps, and she meets what she thinks is the gardener. And the gardener turns out to be Jesus. And he asks her to go and tell his brothers that he has risen. So we have, just before Jesus has ascended, we have the disciples. They have this news. They've seen the empty grave. But they're locked in a room for fear of the Jews. And in verse 19 it says, When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. Then the disciples rejoiced, and when they saw Jesus, when they saw Jesus, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Let's look at the statement, As the Father sent me, I am sending you. This is a bit like saying the name of the common wild duck is Histronicus, 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 if we don't know the whole story. If we don't know how Jesus lived, how he was sent, how he died, how he rose again, we have no meaning, do we? But as the Father sent me, Think about that for a minute. As the Father sent me, all through scriptures, we have seen that coming, that God was going to send his son. Right from the very beginning um, in Act 2, when um, Adam and Eve sinned and God promised a redeemer would come. And then this redeemer that will come started right in Act, in, in Act 3, God put it into place. And, and things move forward from there. So, we know how the Father sent Jesus. It's hard to see in this but, uh, because of English, but as the Father has sent me, doesn't mean he's not sent anymore at this point in time. He's still sent. His sending doesn't stop. I am, sent, I am sending you. He continues with us, and I am sending you. And so we're given the commission to be sent, 
just as Jesus was sent, to carry on the story that started right at the beginning. Secondly, let's look at the phrase, peace be with you. The disciples, remember, are locked in the room full of fear, uh, fear of the Jews, and Jesus says, peace be with you. But this is not actually a peace meaning the absence of conflict or sort of hearts and roses peace. This is peace um, in the Jewish understanding of peace. This is peace as in the idea of shalom in the overwhelming overall wellness and completeness of God. This is not wellness as in good health. This is wellness as in the songs of that famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Um, it, it's that sort of wellness. It's completeness. Then Jesus shows his hands and his side. He shows them to the disciples. And this speaks of the way of sacrifice that Jesus, the path of sacrifice that Jesus followed. The peace of God was entirely dependent on these specific wounds. The scars from the crucifixion declare peace to the world. The punishment that brought us peace, Isaiah 53 says, the punishment that brought us peace was on him and his wounds, and by his wounds we are healed. So often this idea of peace of God, the peace of God and suffering is linked. In Romans 5.1 again, um, in the beginning of Romans 5.1 to 11, um, we find linked the peace of God with suffering. So again we see that peace is not the absence of strife or conflict or um, worry or... or um, those bad things, but it's an overall wellness and completeness that he's talking about. So we have the peace of God. We have the peace of God um, and we are commissioned, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. And Jesus' example is his hands in his side. Philippians 2 says, we are to have the mind of Christ, who being in the very nature God, nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That is what Adam and Eve wanted, didn't they? They wanted to grasp equality with God. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So we have Jesus as an example. And we're to take up Jesus' story and continue that story. And lastly, the last point from this passage that I'd like to bring out is that Jesus breathed on them and he gave them the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for breathed here 
um, is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. But it is found in the Greek translation of the um, Old Testament, something that the disciples, uh, that's the, the translation it's thought that the disciples read. And most significantly, this word breathed is found in two different places in the Old Testament. Uh, firstly, in Genesis 2, 7. And then the Lord God formed man from dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And then in Ezekiel 37, verses 1 to 14, we have... Uh, the vision of Ezekiel, the vision that God gave him of the Valley of Dry Bones, which we were just singing about. We have God breathing in life into the dry bones and them raising up to life. Ezekiel 37 prophesies a vision in which Israel is fully restored by the breath of God. When we put John 20, 22 in the context of Ezekiel 37, we find that in breathing upon the apostles, Jesus is identifying them as the core of Israel, which is being resurrected, re resurrected and becoming a mighty army to fulfill the Great Commission. So God breathed life into them, a new life into the disciples. And he filled them with the Spirit. He gave life and empowerment to the disciples. And the same holds for us. They were called to participate in God's mission to the world and thus redeem what Adam and Israel had failed to do. And we are called the same thing as we were praying before this. The forgiveness of sins... The, um, the scripture says, I haven't got it in front of me, that, if, that we are called to, if you forgive the sins of any, in verse 23, they are for, forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Just difficult words. But it's thought that this is prophetic. It's, it's what we were doing just before the sermon. God breathes his new life into people, and we are carriers of that new life out into the world, where we can bring forgiveness by our declaration of what God has done, by telling those outside um, of God's life what God's story is, so that they too can receive um, the breath of God, new life, the Holy Spirit. So let us remember as we improvise, as we take God's story and live it out right here and now today, that we have the peace of God. We are sent by God. Jesus has not left us orphans, as he says in John about 14, I think. Um, but we have the Holy Spirit, we have the empowerment, so let us take up the peace of God, let us take up our cross, and as, God, as the Father sent Jesus, let us be sent into the world.
invite the music team up. <laughs> 